Greetings, listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So on this episode, um, I wanted to talk about um, player expectations um, and how they're different when you're playing with kids than when you're playing with uh, teenagers or adults. And I'm going to talk about one specific example, and that is how the economy works, basically, Um, because... A lot of times, player behavior is informed by real-world assumptions in ways that are so subtle or or so frequently taken for granted that you don't even realize it. And to explain what I mean, because I'm sure that is about as clear as mud, I am going to give you a real example of the Swords and Wizardry white box game that I'm running for my eight-year-old daughter and my five-year-old son. So I wanted to run Swords and Wizardry white box, and I knew that the mechanics for that are so simple that my five-year-old would be able to uh, follow it, as opposed to 5th edition, which streamlined though it may be, is still a little bit mechanics heavy for a 5-year-old. My daughter's been playing 5th edition for two years, and she has it down, although she's never read the player's handbook. Um, but when when we came when it came time to choose which adventure we were going to do, my kids became fixated on the poop monster in Rappanathuk. They really want to go and fight the poop monster. They know it's immortal, that they can't possibly defeat it. But they're kids. They want to fight the poop monster. Okay, the problem with that is that the poop monster is on level one of Rappanathuk, which oh, I think it's level four, or you have to be character level four to have a chance of surviving that. Possibly higher. I need to really I need to look that up again. So they're going to need to do some adventuring beforehand. Otherwise... They're not going to get high enough. They're not going to be a high enough level. And I wanted an adventure that I wanted an adventure that would um, lead into Rappanathic more or less naturally. Yeah. So something that would uh, something that would lead into Rappanathuk um, and yet start at level one. So there, there are two Swords and Wizardry introductory modules published by Frog God Games. One is uh, the one written by Matt Finch, Grimsgate, which is a great classic dungeon crawl with a creepy little town next to it. Good backstory. Um, lots of really good encounters, weird mole people. And the other one is Bill Webb's introductory module, 1975, spelled out in Roman numerals. And I ended up going with Bill Webb's, um, first of all, because Bill Webb wrote Rap and Athletic, so I thought, might as well get them used to uh, Bill Webb's uh, in- adventure design style. 
Um, also, because I'm running white box, although this this module is written with complete in mind, um, by calling it 1975, he's definitely evoking the sensibilities of kind of uh, three little brown booklets or Greyhawk supplement era play. You know, very early uh, Dungeons and Dragons. Um, I'll probably review this adventure at some point in the future, maybe after we've completed it, assuming everybody survives. One thing, um, it's either free or very cheap or pay what you want. I forget now because I've, I bought it a while ago. Um, but it is not, it's not very expensive, especially as PDF. In fact, I think it's only available as a PDF, but it's worth it at least for, it's got it in the, before the adventure proper starts. It has four or five pages of Bill Webb kind of talking about what old school gaming is really like. It's almost like Bill Webb's version of Matt Finch's primer, old school primer for old school gaming. It's like his his uh, description and take on old school gaming, which is well worth reading. Um, some great stuff in there. Stuff that if you're if you're from the new school and you're getting into old school, um. It's great. It's great uh, advice, and uh, for what you you know how you should change your perceptions and your expectations, and what you should you know what you should expect from a, from an old school game, both from a rule system and from the style of play. Um, so there are some random encounters, and one of those is a trade caravan. And the first time my kids drew this trade caravan random encounter i hadn't prepped it in advance and i instantly regretted it because it's not like a set the description of the trade caravan isn't set the the it's it's got some randomness built into it so these encounters typically involve 2d6 wagons and are accompanied by 1d8 armed men and two merchants or drivers per wagon also armed guards are armed with crossbows and hand weapons and typically wear chain mail Goods range in value from 10 to 100 gold pieces, so 1d10 times 10 uh, per wagon, and usually include items of value to local villages, cloth, metal goods, sundries, farm equipment, food and drink. There is a 10% chance that the caravan is carrying adventuring supplies, such as arms or armor. If so, the number of guards is doubled. Caravans are happy to sell at 125% of book values or buy at 25% of book values. Each merchant carries from 20 to 200 gold pieces in cash. So the first time they drew that, I said, oh man, I have to roll a bunch of extra stuff up on the spot now. And, and you know, luckily they didn't interact too heavily with the caravan. I mostly used it as a news encounter. I was kind of hoping that if they survive this adventure, they, they won't be level four. So that we would do Grimsgate next. So they gave them some news about how, oh, yeah, we used to pass through the village of Grimsgate, but they've, you know, that village has seen better days. We're thinking of taking it off our route. There's there's no point in going there. And unfortunately, my daughter said, okay, we'll give that town a miss instead of saying, oh, we should go there and see what's wrong. So uh, that may have backfired. Um, I was hoping to give them an adventuring hook. But anyways, after that session... I rolled up a trade caravan so that if they encountered another one, uh, it would be more fleshed out. 
And this is what I came up with. I came up with five wagons um, and a total of eight guards. So the first wagon only has 10 gold pieces of value on it. The second one, 20 gold pieces. The third one, 100. I you know, actually rolled a 10, so it's got 100 gold pieces. It's the richest of the wagons in terms of, its, uh, in terms of it, the value of its goods. That wagon is not carrying arms or armor, but it is carrying bows and arrows because although adventurers perceive those as weapons, other people can use them for hunting. So they're actually, it's, it's like a dagger, you know, an ordinary person might have a dagger because they actually use that for cutting meat and things. Um, so they won't, it won't have swords or sheaths or shields or chain mail or plates, armor or anything like that. But it does have bows and arrows, not crossbows, because that's just a weapon. The fourth wagon has 70 gold pieces worth of goods, and the fifth has 50 gold pieces. Now, eight guards doesn't divide up into five wagons equally. So what I did was I put three guards around the, the, the most expensive wagon, the one wagon number three, with 100 gold pieces worth of goods. Then two guards around the one with 70 gold pieces worth of goods, wagon number four. Now, I decided to name the merchant and driver of each of them, and I, I was looking mainly for – I made them up off the top of my head. So wagon number three, the richest wagon with three guards, their merchant and driver team are Farrell and Flynn. They both are armed, but they have three guards. The wagon number four with 70 gold pieces of value. Um, the <clears throat> merchant and driver team are Jest and Zhivago. <clears throat> Jest and Zhivago resent Farrell and Flynn because they only have 30 gold pieces less of, you know, worth of goods. And they feel like, why should they get the third guard? Why should they get one extra guard just because they have a little bit more value that's you know 30 gold pieces is actually quite a lot but in their minds we're almost as rich as they are we should have three guards too meanwhile wagon number five with 50 gold pieces well they're not so far behind uh justin zivago so that's bildreth and Frod. i think bildreth i got from bildreth mercantile in uh the village of barovia Frod um I don't know. It kind of means it's kind of it's it's a little bit close to the German word for happy, but also a little bit close to the old English word for wise. I just made it up off the top of my head, but that's probably where my mind was going with those. They don't see why Jest and Zhivago should have two guards when they only get one, as if they're as cheap as, you know, Ichabod and Gale oh Gailey who only are carrying 20 gold pieces worth of uh, goods, or Husong and Larry. Uh, that was the last one I named, and I'm just like, you know, that Mexican restaurant when I was a kid, Husong and Larry. So, so wagons three, four, and five have kind of an antagonistic relationship with each other. And I was, gonna, I was planning on using that so that if... if if the PCs talk to all three merchants, or all, well, or all five merchants, even 
they would find that some of them are willing to sell their goods for a lower rate and buy back goods at a higher rate just to spite the the ones that they don't like so that if if they if they took the time to role play through this encounter they could get a better deal than that selling things for 125% of the cost and buying them at 25% cuz at this point my kids had stuff that they were looking to get rid of that they'd found that was valuable like an extra suit of armor and things and they also they'd found a bow but no arrows and a bow without a string so they were looking for a bowstring and some more arrows and things so they were looking to do some business so i thought man i'm so looking forward to this encounter because you know they can they can talk to the npcs and eventually figure out who's going to give them the best deal and stuff and i thought for sure my daughter at least would ace this and it turns out she could not be bothered haggling whatsoever. I quoted her ridiculous prices. And she's just like, she had the money, so she's just like, sure, whatever. And later on, I was thinking, why would she do that? She's so good at other things. If you've read like um, some of the uh, write-ups of our sessions on my blog, ddanddragons.wordpress.com, uh, you'll see that she has a lot of really good instincts, especially for old school style of play. She asks a lot of questions. She responds really well to the descriptions and things. And she just, she had absolutely no interest in haggling or doing any role playing that involved buying and selling. She's just like, look, I'll pay what it costs. If I've got it, I'll pay what it costs. I think if she didn't have the money to buy what she wanted, she probably would have tried to get a deal then, but she had the money. And she was happy to part with it. And it reminded me of the, how in our our fifth edition game, in our original adventure, she was very spendthrift with money there. And I was thinking, why would she be like that? She's so mature in a way with all the other RP, like all the other role-playing decisions. And I realized she, first of all, she understands the reality of this game, which is that... If she needs more money, all she has to do is go on another adventure, and there will always be more adventures. I'm never going to sit down for a session and say, there's no more adventures, so you're out of money. That's just not going to happen. She knows that if she needs more treasure, she just needs to go on another adventure, and I will always put an adventure in front of her, because that's my job as the game master. And the other thing is that she doesn't have a job. She does have a what you know what you would call an allowance in America, or we refer to as her pocket money, whereas we pay her a pound a week to lay the table or set the table for you Americans. Um, I'm thinking of raising her pocket money by fifty pence if she'll just keep her goddamn room tidy. Um, but she also gets a lot of money at Christmas <clears throat> from relatives abroad who have, who really can't buy her things in person so they just send her amazon gift cards or checks or sometimes they just send us christmas cards full of cash some of which she's you know goes back several years because she doesn't have anything to spend this money on and all of her basic needs are met by her parents 
Whereas adult players and teenage players approach a role-playing game with the same in-game reality, which is that if they need money, all they need to do is go on another adventure. That's all they have to do. And there's always going to be another adventure. The reality of the game is you're never going to show up for a game session and have your, your game master say, yeah, there's nothing really happening in the world. So um, I guess we'll do a whole session of you guys um, trying to uh, scrounge a pint of mead at the cheapest possible price or something. I mean, you could have a session like that, but you probably wouldn't have players for very long. So gold isn't actually scarce, you know. I mean, some GMs are more generous with their gold rewards or with their treasure rewards than others. But at the end of the day, all any adventurer needs to do to get money is go on an adventure. So why do grown-ups and older players automatically conserve gold? It's because they're bringing in their real-world assumption of how real economies work. When you have a real job and real bills to pay, then you know that you know you can't just be throwing your money around. Money is a finite resource and it's a necessary resource. And you treat it that way automatically in-game even though it's not. It is not a finite resource. And it's only as necessary as your game master makes it. You know, there's a lot of GMs who don't, track things like rations and stuff. Um, my GM at my, where I'm a player at my friendly local game store, he did. I, I, I used to go through the motions of buying rations in little brief periods of downtime, but he never asks if we have enough rations anyway. So it's a waste of gold or it's a waste of fake gold of in-game gold. So the reality of everybody's RPG experience, unless you're playing some super gritty, super realistic game, is that actually gold practically grows on trees. I mean, you just go down into the dungeon. Yeah, you're going to have to risk your life, but you basically go down in the dungeon and get it if you need it. But nobody approaches it that way because we all treat money in-game the same way we treat it in the real world, which is that I need to hold on to this in case there's a rainy day. But my kids haven't embraced, they haven't experienced that reality yet. So they treat money in a, in game in actually a much more, well, a much more logical way for the, for the in-game reality. And this is just one really interesting player expectation that I think you'll find if you run a lot of games with kids who are too young to have a job is that it's not that the gold means nothing to them. They also understand that it's a reward for doing well, just like points, you know, or collecting all the, like the right now my kids are in the other room playing Super or playing Mario Kart 8. And, you know, you race around the track and one of the things you want to do is collect those coins. And the, re the actual thing that those coins do in game is they make your cart go faster. In Dungeons and Dragons, well, in old school Dungeons & Dragons, gold coins, gold pieces give you experience points. But in any RPG, they tend to be a reward. They, they get that it's a reward, so they do want to get them because they know it's an indication that they've done well. But when it comes time to spend it, my daughter will spend it as freely as anything. Because if she runs out, she knows all she has to do is take the next adventure hook and she'll, be, she'll have gold again. And the one thing she can 
depend upon is that there's always going to be another adventure. So anyways, that's one way in which I think playing primarily with young children can be different than playing with um, teenagers and adults is that they will be spendthrift and they'll be spendthrift for a very good reason. I certainly learned a lot from running this caravan encounter that this is one way that I cannot, I cannot depend upon having the interaction that I expected. I need to alter my expectations. So the next time they meet a caravan, I'm just going to tell them what, what they're selling and what they're willing to buy. And we'll move on. Um, and not bother with the, uh, the weird infighting and, and uh, one-upmanship and other things that I wrote in. Although I'll probably keep this encounter for if I ever do get a chance to run a game uh, for grown-ups. Because I, I assume they will treat gold more the way that we treat money in the real world. So, that's my thoughts on gaming with kids for today. Um, in the meantime... Play well and let the dice fall where they may.